In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. Hello, this is Robert Riggs. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement, victims, and even convicted criminals, plus insights for your personal protection. Now, here's our episode. In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from behind badges and prison bars that separate fact from fiction. Those guys, when I say they were bad boys, they were they were tush all day. You would not want to meet them in a dark alley. In this episode, I'm going to take you behind the high walls and razor wire into the dark corners of the largest prison system in the world. David Stacks, a former Texas prison warden with 30 years of frontline experience, provides an unfiltered look at life behind bars. Today, Stax is the director of the Texas Prison Museum. He's here with stories from inside the toughest Texas prisons that held the meanest of the mean. I think one of the uh, interesting stories I, I remember was an inmate that when I worked at Diagnostic, there was an inmate. He had been a funeral home director. I don't recall his name off the top of my head, but he had like three funeral homes, if I recall, up in the East Texas area, the Smith County, uh, Gregg County area up in there. And to hear him tell his story, he got greedy. And he had his pilot's license, and he would fly to Mexico, and he'd fly in marijuana and kind of enriched his pocketbook, you might say. And and he and his wife started having problems, and uh, she found it on her way to um, – basically turn him into the law and get, get, get away from him. It's my understanding that they arrested him, and he made bond, and while he was out, he ended up disposing of his, his wife. To hear him talk about it, he uh, knew exactly what he needed to do to get rid of her. He put her in a tub after killing her, used some chemicals that he knew that would dissolve the body, and pulled the plug, and down the drain she went. And I said, well, how in the world did you ever get caught? He says, well, he says, I got drunk one night in a bar and started talking because that was the whole story in the town was that, uh, you know, he killed his wife because she was going to testify against him. 
And uh, but I got drunk one night and I said something to a guy sitting at the bar next to me, and lo and behold, I got busted for murder as well as for a dope offense. And they used that testimony and that witness against me. And he ended up doing quite a bit of time at Diagnostic. He was a very smart man. He was uh, actually what we would call a bookkeeper back then. He kept books on uh, various things related to administrative work uh, in uh, in the prison. So that would be one interesting guy that I, I had an opportunity to be with. Stacks recalls a clever prison escape at the Ramsey Unit, a prison farm that consists of five former plantations from the late 1800s located south of Houston. A repeat offender could not face a new 75-year sentence. But he just was not mentally prepared to do that. But because of his previous institutional record, he was given a job working in the shower area, which is what was unique about this is the bus that used to deliver inmates to that particular unit would drive right up to the back slab next to the shower. And he ended up getting a two-by-six, and I think the two-by-six was somewhere around 18 feet long, and he was able to just put it in the, on the back slab, left it there for days and days and days, and it kind of became a routine side. No one questioned it. And one day he put it underneath the, the bus chassis, and he rode that two-by-six out of the penitentiary. The officers at the back gate that was supposed to uh, shake the vehicle down, look underneath the chassis with mirrors and all, obviously they didn't do it or they didn't do a very good job of it. He went out of that back gate, that chain bus, it would go back the route it initially came. He went to the next unit, went in and out of that back gate, undetected, went through the next unit, in and out, without being detected until he got to his final destination where the unit were the, the bus would be staged for the next day's work. And after it got night, he came out from underneath the bus and ran off. To me, that was a pretty clever, but it was all because people didn't do their job. Stacks worked on the Maximum Security Retrieve Unit. It opened on the grounds of the former Retrieve Plantation of 1839. Retrieve held serial killer Kenneth Allen McDuff the subject of the beginning of this podcast and my five-part streaming television documentary titled Freed to Kill. How tough were the inmates there? McDuff was considered meek among the killers. At Retrieve, there were a lot of inmates there that had been, uh, their sentences had been commuted from death row to life in prison. Not life without parole, but just a life sentence. Several of those guys in fact, I just had one stop by the museum. He's, he has since been paroled, and he's living a good life. Uh, he stopped by here and visited with me the other day, and he was a, he was a, a model inmate, even though he was, had been on death row and he was doing a life sentence. And I guess the best way I can say it, uh, Robert, is you don't ever trust these guys 100%. You, you, you try and use their their history of how they behave in the institution, and you're trying to use that to the best of your advantage for managing that prison. And, and this guy in particular was a smart guy. He was a good worker. Uh, he was responsible as a boiler room operator. You know, boiler room is a very important job. You can blow the whole 
prison off the face of the ground, you know. But he was very responsible and did a good job. And what he actually did to get put on death row, it, it loses me right now off the top of my head. But he got out, and he, he's done very, very well. That's not the case on some other guys that were down there that were off death row. Some of those guys, I mentioned evil before. Uh, there was a bunch of guys that were very evil down there. Very seldom did fistfights happen on the tree. Most most times it was a stabbing and a killing. I know there was at least uh, one one stabbing, and I remember that ended up in a death down there. Uh, it was a, a gang hit. It was the uh, Pistoleros hit a Nuestas Familia guy and um, stabbed him multiple times, and he died. So, yeah, it was a pretty rough place back then. But that was just one of many units that TDC had a lot of, of violence on. Unfortunately, I have to kind of tell on myself, uh, when I was at Retrieve, it was a maximum security unit. Unfortunately, we had several inmates run off while I was there. Uh, we actually had three inmates in segregation that were Aaron Brotherhood members who manipulated to um, secure structures and got outside the fence. One of the inmates, his grandmother, lived not too far from the unit down in the Lake Jackson area, and if the crow flies from Retrieve, Lake Jackson is probably five miles. He and his two compadres went down and stole his grandmother's vehicle, and off they went up 59. No telling where they were going to go, but they ran out of gas. Didn't have any money. Ran out of gas on the side of the road. And I hadn't been at the prison very long uh, as the major, the new major there. And uh, the warden called me up front. Actually, before that, I was getting my shoe shined. The inmate that was shining my shoe was a guy named Rez. Well, he had been put in segregation earlier because he tried to cut one of our warden's throat. Actually, he did. He cut Bob Cousins' throat, tried to escape. To try and give you some idea of the clientele at Retrieve, Although he cut a warden's throat in a, an attempted escape, he ended up, ended up being a boot black. In other words, he worked in the officer's barbershop shining shoes. So I, I remember that guy. The only reason I remember that, because once he cut Bob Cousins' throat, he didn't kill him. He came to the diagnostic when I was a correctional officer. And I remember because he had a full tattooed tiger on his back and the tail came across his shoulder and kind of looped around his belly. That's the only time I've been around a guy because of uh, the notoriety of what he did to Warden Cousins. When I got down to Retrieve, I'm in there getting my shoe shine, and I'm thinking, and I, I know you, Rez. Where I know you from? Said, well, you probably know me from the Warden Cousin incident. Yeah, that's where I know you from. Well, the siren goes off, and I go up the Warden. I go up there. Rez says, you need to kind of go up front, Major. I mean, I'm I'm green. I'm I'm wet behind the ears as it relates to that, that particular unit. I go up front and Warden. Warden asked me, he says, uh, have we had an escape? I said, I said, I know of. I said, I've checked all the counts. You know, I, that's one thing I do. I check all the counts, make sure all the counts were, you know, paper counts, you know, make sure everything tallied up. Well, sure enough, he, he said, well, I just got a call from an officer at Crosby, close to Crosby. Says he's got three guys that said they just escaped from the retrieve unit. Well, sure enough, those were our three guys that escaped from the retrieve unit, and they were AB members. And that was probably the most embarrassing escape that I had ever been associated with because that was on my watch. One of my night shift uh, supervisors and some of his staff had counted dummy bodies all night long. They had made good 
dummy heads, stuffed the bed with pillows and various sheets and things that had gathered. And they counted a non-breathing body for like five counts. So that was embarrassing, to say the least. But the retrieve unit was full of guys like uh, that guy that cut dozens' throat and those guys that escaped. It was a it was so back to McDuff, if I might say McDuff, since he's kind of notoriety down there, he was a nobody. Well, I take it that in your career you met a lot worse than McDuff. I have. Particularly those individuals that were in the gangs. Yeah. You know, I, I had on one occasion uh, when I was at Ramsey, uh, the guy that was head of the uh, Texas Syndicate, uh, he came over for a medical appointment. I did not know him that well at that time, but my major did. I met him at the back gate, escorted me in because he was a high-profile gang member. And uh, he told the major, he says, uh, you still got my brother over here? He said, yeah. He said, will you lock him up while I'm uh, here for the medical appointment? Because I've been given the hit to kill him, and I can't do that to my mama. So we locked the guy up temporarily until we got that gang member off the unit. That way he could go back to his gang members and say, I was going to kill him, but I couldn't get to him. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind he'd have done it. That's kind of the way some of this gang stuff works, you know. And uh, But, yeah, there's there's some guys out there that uh, that are clever. There's a, there's a lot of these guys that are extremely clever, very, very bright. Some of the most high-profile escapes we've ever had are guys who've got a pretty high intellect, and they, they're, they're very... Uh, very astute to their environment and can make it to the best of their advantage and what they want to do, and that is get out of custody. Stack served as the warden of the East Ham unit for five years, called the Ham by inmates. Its most notorious historical resident was Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame. They even returned to break out a gang member in a deadly shootout, prompting the head of the prison system to hire former Texas Ranger Frank Hamer to hunt them down and kill them in a hail of gunfire. The East Ham unit, way back in the day, it was where, it was one of the prisons where the hardened, forgeable type inmates, that's where they were sent. And Clyde ended up there, even though he was a young man, and he went there because of all the crimes he had done prior to coming to prison. It wasn't because he was an experienced convict. And there's no doubt in my mind that he probably was abused. There's no doubt in my mind that he probably was abused by some older men there, convicts, because he was 18, 19 years old, I think, when he went to East Ham. And uh, actually, uh, there was a person that was, there was an inmate, building tender, that got killed, uh, if I remember correctly. And Clyde supposedly killed him, but another inmate took the rap for him because Clyde was going to be coming up for parole. And this particular inmate was one that uh, uh, over-exercised his authority. And uh, apparently Clyde had enough of it and beat him with a bar. And uh, another inmate took took up and stabbed him. And uh, But yeah, East Ham, when you go to East Ham, you're going to be there a long time. When I left in... 06, there was an inmate there who had done, I don't know, 
know, 27 years. I went out there two years ago. He's still there. He's probably done 42 years for sexual assault of various people. He's one that, although I think he's changed his life, he's not one that I think we need to release. I mean, I wish him well. I hope he goes to heaven. But we don't need to release him back to the population. I'm talking about our population, where you and I reside. There are some people you just don't let out. And I think that would be too much of a risk to let that person out. Even though he's got some age on him, I wouldn't let him out. When I return, I will talk to Stax about the challenges of serving as a corrections officer in the Texas prison system today. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. A few days before this interview, 27-year-old Jovan Motley died while trying to restrain an inmate at the East Ham unit, now named the Wainwright unit. Motley was part of a five-member team that physically removes inmates who refuse to come out of their cells. He had been an officer for one year. At the time of this interview, the cause of his death had not been determined. You know, that is a very difficult job. You know, our law enforcement community out there, they got a very dangerous job, you know. When I worked in the prison, I could pretty well feel comfortable walking up and down my hallway, whether I was an officer, whether I was a lieutenant, a captain, major, warden, whatever, that a guy walking down the hallway ain't going to pull a gun out and shoot me. I, I didn't have to worry about that. I never really worried about that at all. Now, he might have a knife on him, you know, but our law enforcement community out there, when they walk up on that car, they have no idea what they're walking up with. So my hat's off to those men and women that are out there doing that. But in the correctional setting, it's a very dangerous job, uh, particularly when you become understaffed. And right now, unfortunately, our prison system is having some staffing issues. Stack says he found that 5% of the prison population was just pure evil and caused most of the trouble. 95% of them, the, the inmates that I did time with were model inmates. They, uh, they worked very well in a structured environment. They caused very little problems. They they followed instructions. They went to work. They were very little problems. But that other 5% caused you that 95% of your problem. And I think probably uh, there's probably some school teachers out there that can probably relate to that and that most of their kids probably are good kids. But you may have just a few in there that cause a lot of disruption that causes a very poor environment for trying to to learn and teach people. But I think most of that was strictly 
a lot of it was bravado. A lot of it was brought on by people in higher echelons within their organizations that were even more evil, making more evil occur. But I think that would be a good way of describing well, it. Well, I've talked and interviewed during my career a number of those 95% of the population inmate, and they always used to say, yeah, they would refer to an inmate, he knows how to do his time. Is it the structure and enforced discipline here that suddenly they're able to f- you know, function and get things done that they don't have on the outside? I think one of the key ingredients uh, that causes these guys to uh, come to their senses first is they're not on any chemicals anymore. You know, when they're out in the world, a lot of them have a lot of chemical problems, whether it be alcohol, whether it be drugs, whatever it may be. And, you know, when I I think most anybody in law enforcement or any treatment would tell you that, uh, when some people get on chemicals, uh, they're not the same people they are when they're not, obviously. So when these guys come to us from the county jails, they're pretty well cleaned up. They have uh, gotten all of that stuff out of them, and they are mentally prepared, particularly those that have recidivized, that have been in the prison more than one occasion. They know what they're going to have to do to maximize their their quality of life in the prison. What is it you think that brings them back? Well, I think uh, that's a that's a pretty good question. I think a lot of it is that they they we got a lot of men that have been in prison are very talented men and women. They got some real good skill sets, and when they get out of prison, they're able to make some really good money, have some really good jobs, and make good money. But then they start dabbling in those chemicals, and they start having some flawed thinking and, and have some blurred vision, you might say. And it causes them to not think the way that they probably should. And I think I blame it primarily on chemicals, whether it be the alcohol, whether it be the the, the drug, illicit drug, whatever. I, that's what I believe. Uh, now, unfortunately, there are some people that are just downright evil. I mean, that's just a fact of life. Now retired, Stax is the director of the Texas Prison Museum. The nonprofit museum is located in Huntsville, Texas, on Interstate 45 between Dallas and Houston. It features many unusual artifacts about the history of the prison system, including an electric chair named Old Sparky that was used from 1924 to 1964 for executions. The Texas Prison Museum, our mission is to educate the people of of Texas and the world about the, the prison system from its beginning in 1848 to current events as much as we can. There's a lot of history here. Uh, there's a lot of history here that we never need to repeat. Uh, we, we speak about that. Uh, we tell it like it is. You know, back in the day when we had a convict leasing system, we never, ever want to go back and, and reinstitute something like that. That was one of the most mismanaged, most cruel programs that the state of Texas had because although the people that were leasing the inmates had a responsibility to care for the inmates' well-being, nutritional needs, clothing needs, medical needs, for whatever reason, a lot of them did not do that. Because of that, there were a lot of inmate deaths. It was, it was cheaper to get another one than to take care of those needs. So that's one thing we talk about is the good and the bad of the system. The good things that are going on in the system are, as I said, some of the programmatic activities they got over there now. 
the faith-based programs are good. But here at the museum in particular, there's just a lot of history. We have the original electric chair here. 361 men died in that chair. Uh, no women ever died. There's a, a lot of good artwork in here. There's a lot of just creativity items that inmates have made, whether they were trying to elude the system through an escape attempt, whether it was uh, contraband, such as uh, uh, making a homemade steel out of a milk can, uh, making a food processor out of a cardboard. I mean, there are tattoo guns, just all kinds of things here that we feel very proud of, and we would love to have anybody, if you're listening, community come and visit with us. We'd love to have them. I find it interesting that ex-offenders stop into the Texas Prison Museum here. What, what do you think draws them back to here? Well, I'm pleased to say that most of them are actually bringing their children in here. Uh, the ones that I've seen come in here, they bring their, their children in here, and they kind of show, you know, the things that I did, your, what your dad did. These are the things that I had to go through uh, as a result of my decisions that I made. And I think it's kind of an education opportunity for them to, to share with their family, their particular their children, that, you know, I made some terrible mistakes. And because of that, this is where I ended up. And these are things I had to endure, and you don't want to have to do this. But we see a lot of those come through here, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, we have some, like I mentioned not too long ago, I had a guy come in here that was an ex-death row inmate that came by just to stop by and say hi and say thank you for what you did for me, Warren. And uh, that's a good feeling, you know. But then you got these other guys that are still somewhat petering on the gangbang inside mm-hmm. that want to bring in their little old chip or their girlfriend and and uh, say, you know, yeah, this wasn't nothing. I could do this standing on my head, you know, trying to be that bravado stuff I talked about. But most of them are pretty humbled when they come in here, and we've never had a problem with any of them. They've always been well-behaved, and we welcome them here. In my next episode, David Stacks will weigh in with advice for your personal safety based on his 30 years of dealing with some of the meanest criminals in Texas. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement, victims, and even convicted criminals, plus insights for your personal protection. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared. Don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.